Hey, how you doing? This is Steve, and you're listening to Rock's Not Dead, a place where we talk about old rock, new rock, and everything in between. We'll dive into the bands, the songs, the musicians, and we'll talk about some interesting things you might not have known about your favorite artists. Today, we're going to talk about the tragic life of one of the most tortured souls in rock and roll. Through his angst-fueled songwriting and his anti-establishment persona, his songs literally created a brand new genre of rock. He's viewed as the face of Generation X, and he's considered one of the most influential, if not the most influential, alternate rock musicians. Today, we're talking about Kurt Cobain. So who was Kurt Cobain? Well, he was born February 20th, 1967 in Aberdeen, Washington. His mother, Wendy Elizabeth, was a waitress, and his father, Donald Cobain, was an auto mechanic. He had one younger sister named Kimberly. Music was in his blood right from the start. His uncle, Chuck Freidenberg, played in a band called the Beachcombers. His aunt, Mary Earl, played in several bands throughout the Grace Harbor area. Grace Harbor is where Aberdeen is located. It's about 100 or so miles southwest of Seattle. And his uncle, Delbert, also performed as an Irish tenor and appeared in the 1930s movie called The King of Jazz. His grandmother, Iris Cobain, was also a professional artist, so there was, he was raised in an artistic family. Kurt was a happy kid. He was a bit hyperactive, but very caring and sensitive. He showed artistic talent at a very early age with drawings he did of his favorite cartoon characters or actors, and his grandmother, being a professional artist, encouraged this. According to his Aunt Mary, he began showing uh, signs of musical talent at a very early age. He started singing at the tender age of two. He was playing piano and even singing at four, writing his own songs. He loved Electric Light Orchestra Band, if you don't know who that is. They were very big in the, in the 70s. And he would sing their songs as well as Arlo Guthrie's motorcycle song, Hey Jude by the Beatles, other things like that. He really loved music. Now, his parents divorced when he was nine years old, and when that happened, it had a huge impact on his life. His mother said his personality changed and he became very defiant and withdrawn, started showing signs of depression. He said in a 1993 interview that he felt ashamed of his parents as a kid. He desperately wanted to have a typical family, you know, to have that sense of security, and, and he resented his parents for several years. During this time, he found refuge in music and art, and he played drums in his elementary band and junior high school bands. He became more depressed and more withdrawn when his parents both found new partners, despite the fact that they had promised him that they wouldn't. His new stepmom uh, and her two kids, Mindy and James, moved in with his dad. He actually liked her quite a bit until she had a baby, which the baby's name was Chad Cobain. At that time, of course, she was paying attention to the to the little one, and he felt that she was taking all the attention away from him, and he became withdrawn and started to resent her for that. At the same time, his mother had entered into an abusive relationship with her new boyfriend spouse, and it was it was really bad. She got beaten a couple times so bad that she was in the hospital, and, and Kurt saw this, but she refused to leave him. So Kurt's interests all were musical or art-related, but his father wanted him to be involved in sports, and he had no interest in it. But his dad made him wrestle in junior high, and he was actually pretty skillful at it, but he would get ridiculed from the other teammates and the coach, and he would let himself get pinned just so he wouldn't have to wrestle. And he hoped that it would hurt his dad because his dad was making him do this in the first place. Then his dad got him to play Little League 
baseball, but he would deliberately strike out so that he didn't have to play. He really didn't want to do this stuff. Now, when he reached around 13 years old, that's when he started smoking pot. And that was kind of the start of his affair with drugs and drug abuse. On his 14th birthday in 1981, his uncle offered him a new bicycle or a guitar. Kurt chose the guitar. As soon as he got it, he started learning songs, and he was spending all his time doing that. His dad didn't like that, so his dad was pushing him to do more sports, kept trying to get him to play baseball and all those other things. His uncle got him lessons with one of the other musicians from the Beachcombers band, and that fueled Kurt's passion for music, and he was spending all his time doing that. His dad didn't like it, made him quit. In school, he befriended a gay student, and he took a lot of pride in that friendship. They became great friends. But because of this, he got bullied and beaten by some of the local toughies. This experience sparked the antipathy he had towards bigotry and his outspoken support for the LGBTQ community. He grew to despise the redneck culture of his small logging community, and he took joy in doing things to provoke them. He would vandalize pickup trucks in the Aberdeen area by spray painting the phrase, God is gay, on them, which he was arrested in 1985 for doing. Or he would tag banks with the phrase, ain't got no how, whatchamacallit, and he was arrested in 86 for doing that. He also was arrested for trespassing in a abandoned building in a drunken stupor. So all these experiences left emotional scars on Kurt, and he was having a hard time overcoming them. He, he wasn't. He was treating them with drugs and, and substances. He started becoming more withdrawn and more antisocial, and it also turned him into being a bit of a bully himself, and he was bullying a kid at school. He started suffering from depression greatly, and he said he was experiencing a lot of stomach pains. His dad and stepmom took him to a therapist who determined he'd do a lot better in a single-family environment, and because his parents were unable to reconcile, his mom gave him to his dad full custody in 1979. This didn't help, however, because his teenage rebellion proved to be too much for his father to handle, and his dad would leave Kurt with family and friends, and at one point he was completely homeless. He lived with the family of his friend Jesse Reed and his father was a saxophonist in the Beachcombers band and so there was musical instruments there and he was allowed to use them. So he and Jesse would spin their 45s for you younger people. A 45 is a small record like a vinyl record if you know what that is. <laughs> but they would spin their 45s and they would play with the music and, and make music together. Jesse's family was a devout Christian family. They went to church regularly. Kurt went with them, got involved in the church, soon became born again, and was enjoying going to church and participating in that and belonging there for a while. And he soon started renouncing his faith and spewing a bunch of anti-God rants. But even though he did that, he explored a bunch of different religions. Now, side note, the song Lithium is actually about his experience living with Jesse's family. While in school, Kurt would draw often in class. A lot of times he'd be drawing parts of the human anatomy that yeah, it's probably inappropriate for school. He would get assignments to draw something and he would get criticism from the teachers. For example, he drew a picture of Michael Jackson and the teacher said it was inappropriate for the hallway. However, it was through these art classes that he met and befriended Roger Buzz Osborne, who was the singer and guitarist for the Melvins, a local punk band. Now they became great friends. He spent a lot of his time with them. He'd go and help the Melvins during their, their performances, he'd hang out during their rehearsals, he did 
everything he could to hang around them as much as possible. And this was Kurt's introduction to punk music. So there's some contention over what his first concert was. Many of his classmates and family members say that his first concert was Sammy Hagar and Quarterflash in 1983. However, Kurt maintained that his first concert was seeing the Melvins when they played a free concert at the Thriftway store. Thriftway was a grocery store chain in the Pacific Northwest. They performed there and that was uh, where Roger worked. He wrote in his journals about the experiences that he had, and in several interviews, he said that that had a huge impact on him. This is where he found his escape from his home life, was the Seattle punk rock scene. This is also where he met Chris Novoselic, who would later become the basis for Nirvana. So he moved in with his mom his second year of high school, and he remained with her until two weeks before he was supposed to graduate. At that time, he found out he didn't have enough credits to graduate, so he dropped out. His mom gave him an ultimatum. She said, you get a job or you get out. Well, a week later, he came home to find all his stuff in boxes on the front lawn. She had thrown him out. He was pretty dejected. I mean, who wouldn't be? Everyone who was important to him just wasn't there for him. So during this time, he stayed with some friends. Sometimes he sneaked back into his mother's basement without her knowing it and stay there. But pretty much he was homeless. Kurt said that during this time, he lived under a bridge that went over the Wishka River, which inspired the song Something in the Way. However, Chris says, eh, no, that didn't happen. He said he hung out down there, but the muddy banks and the tides coming in and out, there's just no way anybody could live there. There's no way he stayed there. He said that was Kurt's own revisionism. At one point, for a very short time, he worked as a janitor at the old high school where he went to school. However, being so sensitive and artistic in the small logging community, it didn't mesh. It wasn't going to work for him. And so he was going to get out of there. In 1992, Kurt said of Aberdeen, it's a really small place with a lot of people with really small minds. Basically, if you're not prepared to join the logging community, you're going to get beaten up or run out of town. That's how he felt about his hometown. In 1985, he formed the band Fecal Manor, which was one of several joke bands that he had formed with some of the members of the Melvins. And this one featured Kurt playing guitar and singing, and he recorded it, created a demo tape. On this demo tape, Dale Crover of the Melvins, he played drums for them, he played bass and drums on the demo tape with Kurt. Around 1986, Kurt moved from Aberdeen to Olympia, Washington. And he was struggling to find people to play with. He would play with Chris from time to time, and he kept asking him to join and create a band, but Chris wasn't into it. But after months of begging, he finally gave in and agreed. So they started looking for drummers. They went through a bunch of drummers during this time. They couldn't find anybody that worked with them. They would play gigs. They were having a hard time pulling in crowds. They just couldn't support themselves. So they enlisted Dale Crover, the Melvin's drummer, to come and do a demo with him. The demo was recorded by Jack and Dino. He's the producer and engineer who's responsible for Soundgarden's first recordings. And they recorded it, and these became known as the Dale Tapes. Now, Jack sent some of these demos out, and it did stir some interest. And people were seeing the potential, but nothing ever came of it. So this is also when Kurt first started using heroin, so that journey started. Now, he said that when he used heroin, his stomach didn't hurt. Remember, he said that he had chronic stomach pain started, you know, a few years before. Now, 
According to Buzz Osborne, his buddy from the Melvins, he says that's not the case. More than likely, heroin use was causing the stomach pains, and Kurt was using that excuse to stay loaded. What would happen, and apparently this is how it works with heroin users, I have no experience with this, but you would use heroin, you'd throw up, and they call it vomiting with a smile on your face. Chris also said that Kurt was prone to abusing alcohol and solvent. So, you know, if you know what that means, he's sniffing glue and stuff like that. He said that Kurt was really into getting messed up with drugs, acid, anything he could get his hands on. He was trying to self-medicate because of his mental struggles. It was through these experiences with drugs that he found the perfect band name, Nirvana. The intent was to stand out from the aggressive, angry-sounding punk bands that they'd been associating with. And they first used this name on March 19th at the Tacoma, Washington Community World Theater. Now, during this time, Andino sent the Dale tape to Bruce Pavitt and John Poneman, two influential DJs at the Seattle's KCMU radio station. And they were partnered with Sub Pop record label. Nirvana's song Floyd the Barber was soon getting airplay and the two DJs came to their first Seattle gig April 10th, 1988 at Central Tavern in Pioneer Square. The crowd was really small and according to Bruce Pavitt, it was three people, Bruce, John, and the bartender. He said they did not impress. Their original material was terrible. Everything was just bad. However, they did like their rendition of Love Buzz by the 60s Dutch band Shocking Blue. That made a pretty big impression on them, and it was enough for the Sub Pop people to invite them to their showcase. So the showcase is called Sub Pop Sunday, and it was an event at the Vogue Club in Seattle. A lot of the up-and-coming, soon-to-be grunge bands were playing at this place. The show did not go as well as they'd hoped. The band was uptight and nervous, and it really showed in their playing. Kurt said he felt like they were being judged. They were, especially since they had songs on the radio and there was a buzz going around them. They really felt that pressure and they didn't respond to it well. But that same night, the sub pop execs saw something they liked. They signed into a record deal. They were written about and praised in Backlash magazine and the two GJs started pushing Nirvana's single Love Buzz slash Big Cheese Hard. Sub Pop offered them an extended contract after that song was doing so well. On June 15th, 1989, they released their first album, Bleach and Andino was their producer. This album sold a remarkable 40,000 units, mostly on the word of mouth. The only way you heard about it was going to a punk rock rave, and that's quite impressive. In September of 1989, they worked with another producer, Steve Fisk, who was known for working with the band Screaming Trees, and he created the Blue EP for New Ravana. They toured for about six months across America and another six weeks in England. Now, around this time, he started a relationship with a girl named Tracy Marauder, and he moved in with her. She was a waitress at the cafeteria at the Boeing plant in Seattle, Boeing, the airplane manufacturer, if you don't know who they are. Uh, she would steal food and bring it home for him. He would tour, and when he wasn't touring, he would spend his time sleeping late or watching TV or doing art projects. And he was also taking a ton of LSD. She kept pushing for him to get a job because they couldn't survive on what she was making. And this resulted in a lot of arguments and ultimately it ended the relationship. Now, side note, Tracy's not only credited for taking the cover and back photos of the Bleach album, 
but she's also the inspiration for the song about a girl, and she didn't know that until years after he died. Not long after this, he started dating a girl named Toby Vale, who was an influential member of the Riot Girl movement. This movement focused on feminism and the problem of sexism in the punk rock scene in the Seattle area. This wasn't a good thing for him. He said when he met her the first time, he puked because he was so overwhelmed by anxiety because of the infatuation he felt for her. Now, side note, the line, love you so much it makes me sick in the song Aneurysm was inspired by this event. He thought of her as a female counterpart and they recorded some music together in a project called The Bathtub is Real. Their time together wasn't satisfying as he wanted a maternal comfort from a traditional relationship, something Toby thought was completely sexist. Despite this, she inspired Kurt to write many songs about her. So during the Bleach album and the tours subsequently that followed, they used a drummer named Chad Channing. And after the UK tour, they came back, they did some shows across America, and then they started recording a new album in April 1990, this time in Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. Now at this time, Kurt had grown very distasteful towards Chad's playing. He did not like his playing. There was some conflict and Chad split. Now they needed a drummer, they didn't have anybody. So they used Dale Crover again for the concerts they had slated until they found and finally hired their permanent drummer, Dave Grawl. They signed with Geffen Records in the spring of 1991 and they recorded their first album for them, Nevermind. This was released on September 24th, 1991 and it included the song, Smells Like Teen Spirit. This song broke them out into the mainstream, and it started a subgenre of rock now known as grunge. They were an instant success, and this paved the way for other grunge artists to come out like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, and Pearl Jam. This album is highly regarded as a 90s masterpiece. Come As You Are was a second explosive radio hit off the album, and they hit the road on a European tour not long after. In 1992, they were a featured band in the movie called 1991, The Year Punk Broke, and this sparked a bunch more interest for them. This is also when the band, in true punk fashion, started taking stances on different political views. They played anti-war benefits. They spoke out against the anti-gay measures that were being presented in Oregon, and they spoke out against the erotic music law in Washington state that was being presented. They donated concert proceeds to a rape relief effort for Bosnia that had been ravaged by war and contributed a song for the fundraising CD for the anti-violence organization Home Alive. Kurt began being very vocal on these and other controversial subjects and it would lead to him getting several death threats including one threatening to shoot him as soon as he stepped on stage. Now with the depression that Kurt had been dealing with for so many years, these types of attacks and threats were not helping his psyche and it actually was detrimental to him. Around this time, they released their second album, Incesticide, and this drew a lot of attention from the fans because of Kurt's open and honest display of his feelings in the liner notes. He expressed his disdain for racists, homophobes, sexists, and rape. In 1993, they worked with a producer named Steve Albini to cut all apologies and heart-shaped box. These were included on In Utro, their final album, which reached number one on the Billboard charts. It was a commercial success, but that didn't sit well with Kurt. He said he felt it was a very impersonal album, even though many of the songs dealt with things that he was dealing with in his personal life. 
The band went through several disputes over production and mixing of the album, specifically with Albini, and Kurt wasn't happy with the results. He forced them to go through several different producers trying to find what he wanted, but none of them were working. And during this time, he was also getting a lot of conflict from the media at the same time. So between the media and the producers, it just wasn't a pleasant time. Kurt wanted what he wanted. He wanted it the way it was. And until they found a producer that would do it the way he wanted, he wasn't going to be satisfied. He wasn't going to be quiet. Somewhere between 1989 and 1991, he met Courtney Love. Now there's some disagreement about how and when they actually met. One version says in 89, they met when Nirvana opened for the Dharma Bums at the Satyricon Club in Portland, Oregon. Another says they met a year later at the different show, but the same club. Yet another one says they didn't meet till 1991 at an L7 Butthole Surfers concert in LA. Whichever one's right, Courtney started chasing Kurt immediately, but he was being very evasive because he wasn't sure he wanted to be in a relationship. Eventually, though, he started spending time with her, and they bonded through their drug use. Courtney was a heroin user as well. In February of 1992, he and Courtney were married in Waikiki Beach, Hawaii. There were a total of eight people in attendance, including Dave Grohl. Courtney said that she was warned by Kim Gordon, the basis of Sonic Youth, that marrying Kurt would destroy her, but she said she didn't care. I love him, and I want to be with him. Courtney was already pregnant with their daughter, Frances Bean, and she was born in August of that year. Now there's a bit more controversy here. Courtney admitted in a 1992 article in Vanity Fair that she would drug binge with Kurt early on in the pregnancy. However, she says later that she was misquoted and that they only used heroin prior to her finding out she was pregnant. This also raised questions as if DeFrancis was born addicted to drugs at birth and the LA Children's Services took them to court, suing them saying that they were unfit parents due to drug use. This added to the struggles that Kurt was already having mentally. Side note, they included a sonogram in the artwork for the single Lithium. November of 1993 found Nirvana on the MTV Unplugged show. It aired in December. There was also a recording of all the mellow versions of the songs that were played on the show. It was sold. It received a Grammy for Best Alternate Album. At this time, grunge was taken over the airwaves thanks to Nirvana, and they became a flagship band for Generation X. Kurt didn't want that, and he wasn't ready for it. He had become a spokesman for a generation unintentionally, and he was resenting it. He felt that they were missing the point of his artistic message and seemingly turning into what he was singing against. The massive success they achieved went against his roots and vision, and he felt probed and prodded at every turn. He began to resent the people that claimed to be fans, yet they did not properly acknowledge or interpret the band's social and political views. On March 1st, 1994, Nirvana was on a tour stop in Munich, Germany, and Kurt was diagnosed with both bronchitis and severe laryngitis. He flew to Rome the next day for treatment and was joined by Courtney on March 3rd. On the morning of the 4th, Courtney woke to find Kurt had OD'd on champagne and what she said was 50 sleeping pills. She called the police and he was taken to the hospital in a coma. They put this down as an accident, but it was believed to be a failed suicide attempt. He returned to Seattle, and on March 18, 1994, Courtney called the police, reporting that Kurt was suicidal and had locked himself into a room with a gun. The police arrived and confiscated several guns and a bottle of pills that Kurt had. 
Kurt insisted that he wasn't suicidal, but he had locked himself in the room to protect himself from his wife. Courtney arranged an intervention on March 25th, and 10 people were in attendance, including record execs, musician friends, and Dylan Carlson, one of Kirk's closest friends. Kirk reacted to this in anger, and he lashed out at everyone who was there. He locked himself in an upstairs bedroom, but by the end of the night, he agreed to go to rehab. Now, I will point out at this point, Courtney was a drug user. She was using heroin with Kurt. From personal experience, it's very difficult for a drug addict or an alcoholic to overcome their disease if someone else in the house has the same disease and isn't trying to overcome it. On March 30th, 1994, Kurt checked into the rehab center in LA, but he only stayed for a day. He escaped by scaling a six foot wall and he flew to Seattle. At this time, he was sitting next to Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses, a band which he despised. It was odd because Duff said he was actually very happy to see him and they talked the entire flight. Duff said later that that whole situation was off and he should have listened to his instincts because he knew something was wrong. No one had seen or heard from Kurt since the flight, and on April 7th, the band pulled out of the Lollapalooza festival that they were supposed to headline, and there were rumors flying around that Nirvana was breaking up. On April 8th, at 9.40 a.m., Seattle's KXRX radio announced that an unnamed local rock star had been found dead in his home. It was soon revealed that Kurt's body had been found in the garage behind the home by an electrician who was there to install a security system. He had apparently committed suicide with a shotgun. A suicide note was found in a nearby flower pot with a pin stuck through the center, and it was addressed to his childhood imaginary friend Buddha. In the letter, he said that he hadn't felt the excitement of playing music or writing music in a very long time. When his body was found, it was determined that he had been dead for a few days, and they estimated that his death was on April 5th. He was only 27 years old. His death sent shockwaves through the music community. Radio stations, MTV, and other media went into all Nirvana, all the time mode. Musicians in the Seattle area took the loss hard, and the landscape of the music in that city had changed forever. On April 10th, a private service was held for family, friends, and label staffers, and hours later, a public memorial of approximately 5,000 Nirvana fans gathered near Seattle's Central Flag Pavilion to console each other and to remember Kurt. Courtney Love read the suicide note. I have to admit, I listened to it, and it was sad, disturbing, and I'm shocked that she did it. I still can't believe that she read the note. But she read the suicide note live for people to hear. Personally, I think she should have kept it to herself. I don't think it should have been something that should have been shared. In times like this, it's not uncommon for people to look for explanation for things they can't understand. And this is one of them. And this is where conspiracy theories come from. While some of these may seem plausible, there has been no proof substantiating anything I'm about to tell you. And again, some of them kind of make sense, but nothing has been presented. No evidence has presented that says that any of this stuff is real. I've toned this stuff down because some of it was very graphic and I don't want to share that in that manner. It can be very disturbing. The whole subject matter is. In the days leading up to his death, after he left the rehab facility on April 2nd, Kurt went into a local gun shop and bought some shotgun shells. There are receipts for this. 
the shotgun that was used belonged to his friend Dylan Carlson. Kurt didn't want to purchase the gun himself because the police had already confiscated several of his own guns. He wanted it in somebody else's name. They found the gun inverted on his chest and his hand wrapped around the barrel and they didn't test for fingerprints for almost a month after his death. A little unusual and of course this lends itself to conspiracy theories. Toxology reports showed that Kurt had high levels of morphine and Valium in his system. This raised several questions by many because 1.52 milligrams per liter of heroin constitutes evidence of a fatal overdose. The lack of specifying whether this was total morphine, which would constitute prolonged use and the buildup of morphine in the system, as well as the dosage he just took, versus free morphine, which is just the dosage he took, has lent itself to conspiracies. However, it is uncommon for them to test for free morphine because it's a more specific test. It requires special equipment and it is very common for them to just test for total morphine. So the toxologists state that he probably could have performed the act under the amount of morphine that he had in his system based on total morphine. While we will never know for sure, that is the assumption. Randall Basselt, a world expert in toxology, wrote a paper in 1975 stating that attempting to use morphine levels to determine cause is meaningless as frequent users will have higher levels. So finding levels this high in his bloodstream indicates he more than likely used within the last four hours prior to his death. Richard Lee, a Seattle public access host, had an ongoing series called Kurt Cobain Was Murdered. In the first episode, he stated there were several discrepancies in the police reports, including several changes in the nature of how he was shot. He claimed that he had acquired a video that was taken from outside the room where they found Kurt's body on April 8th, and the scene was remarkably free of any blood that you would expect. Several pathologists have disputed this. They were saying that if he held the gun in a specific manner, it could explain why less blood was shown versus another way. Tom Grant, he was a private investigator hired by Courtney to find Kurt after he left the rehab facility. He believes that Kurt was murdered. His theories have been analyzed in several books, TV shows, and movies, including the 2015 docudrama Soaked in Bleach. Grant was still working for Courtney when Kurt was found, and he maintains that events leading up to that are filled with lies, contradictions, and inconsistency. He says that Courtney and her lawyers have taken legal steps to try to keep the public from learning the truth. First, Grant maintains that Kurt could not have injected himself with that large a dose of heroin and still been able to pull the trigger. We've already discussed this in the toxology reports, and he's taking the side that it was not total morphine, but free morphine that they found in his system. Second, he believes that Kurt's suicide note wasn't a suicide note at all, but it was doctored up to make it look like that. Third, there was a lack of any fingerprints found at the scene, Kurt's or anyone else's. Fourth, he claims that Courtney had financial motive to kill Kurt as he was planning on divorcing her and he had just turned down a $10 million paycheck by canceling headlining at Lollapalooza. He also maintains that the claim that 
Kurt attempted suicide in Rome wasn't made until after his death. The doctor who treated Kurt, Dr. Osvaldo Galata in Rome, he said it wasn't a suicide attempt. He says he can usually tell when someone's trying to kill themselves. And the statement that Courtney had made that he had 50 pills removed from his stomach was not the case. They didn't remove any pills. He says he believes what she did was grind up the pills and put it in the champagne and he unknowingly drank it. And she thought that would be enough to kill him. Now, to dispute this, if that was the case, why would she call the police and have him taken to the hospital prior to his death? Grant also maintains that people close to him at Gold Mountain Records firmly state that Kurt was not suicidal, had no desire to die. Grant also says that no family or friends were ever told that he was struggling or that they needed to keep an eye on him. Others maintain that the record execs were lying about this. They knew how he was feeling, but they wanted to keep the money rolling in. And by hiding it, they could continue down that path. Lee Rondaldo, the lead guitar player for Sonic Youth, said that the incident in Rome was just another one in a long list of attempts that Kirk had made that were swept under the rug to keep away from the public. Now, it's prudent to point out that Grant has made money off of this conspiracy theory. He's got it from books and movies and all that, like I've already mentioned. He claims that he has struggled with this because he doesn't want to make money off of it. But if he went broke, then he'd have to drop his investigation and Courtney would get away with it. So you have to keep that into consideration. It's also notable that homicide detective Sergeant Donald Cameron, who was involved in the case, has dismissed Grant's claims and states there's absolutely no proof of anything that he claims. Another homicide detective, Mike Javensky, who reviewed the case, also said that a seasoned detective would never have come up with any of Grant's claims or conclusions. And Dylan Carlston, Kurt's friend who owned the gun, said that if he thought it was murder, he would have taken care of it himself. Nick Broomfield is a filmmaker, and he investigated these theories himself. He created a documentary called Kurt and Courtney. While he was making the film, he spoke to several people that were associated with the couple, including Courtney's estranged father, Kurt's aunt, and one of the former nannies for the couple. He also spoke to the band leader of the mentors, Eldon Elduce Hoke, who claims that Courtney offered him $50,000 to kill Kurt. He said he didn't do it, and he also claims he knew who did it, but he was gonna let the FBI find out. Now, ironically, a few days after this interview, he was killed in the middle of the night after he got hit by a train. There's some more conspiracy for you. While some may say that this would add to the conspiracy theory, Broomfeld concluded that he didn't find anything to back up the murder theory. Broomfeld believes that Kurt committed suicide. He said he also found in his investigation there just wasn't anyone there caring about him. He believes that Courtney had moved on and found him expendable. Two journalists, Ian Halperin and Max Wallace, did their own investigation. And while they believe that Kurt did want to divorce Courtney and found evidence that she was looking for the most vicious divorce lawyer she could find to try to blow up the prenups that they had both signed prior to getting married, they didn't find any evidence that confirmed Kurt was murdered. 
However, they felt that they found enough evidence to warrant the case being reopened and reexamined. Now, if you're interested, they have written two books about this. One is called Who Killed Kurt Cobain? And the other one is called Love and Death, The Murder of Kurt Cobain. The second was a collaboration with Tom Grant, the first investigator. The overwhelming consensus between family and close friends is that Kurt killed himself. However, there are those that just don't believe this. This includes Courtney's father, Hank Harrelson, and Kurt's grandfather, Leland Cobain. Kim Morton, the bass player for Sonic Youth, and her then-husband, Thurston Moore, were asked in August of 2005 if they thought Kurt was murdered. She said yes. Thurston stated that he died in a very harsh and aggressive way, which was not in line with his personality whatsoever. He wasn't violent or aggressive. He was very sensitive, very smart, had a keen intellect, and it's just not something they thought he would do. However, in 2015, Kim said she's not surprised that Kurt killed himself, so she's contradicting what she had said previously. Danny Goldberg, Nirvana's manager and one of Kurt's friends, states that the conspiracy theories are ridiculous. He had been with Kurt the week prior, and he was depressed, he was talking about suicide, and he was taking drugs. He says there was no question that he killed himself. Former bandmates and his family and his father have stated that they still mourn his death, but the conspiracy theories are baseless and unfortunately are making it difficult for them to let things go. Now, Kurt Cobain is a prime example of being careful of what you wish for because you might get it. He was a unique individual. He was poetic, sensitive, intelligent, and he really wanted to stand up for the underdog. He suffered through a rough life, and because of that, he had scars that ran deep. He became a reluctant spokesperson for a generation, and his voice still resonates today, and I'm sure it will as long as his music exists. His success and status was more than he could handle, and his spiral happened in a remarkably short time. So what can we learn from this? We need to be there for others. We need to let them know that their lives are important and that they're important to us and people care about them. If you or someone you know is struggling, going through crisis, having suicidal thoughts, please reach out. Let somebody know that you need help. Text or call 988 to reach the Suicide Crisis Lifeline. Let them know they will help you. Reach out to someone. Thanks for joining me on this. I hope you learned something. I hope you found it interesting. So if you have comments about what we just talked about or you want to talk about uh, other artists or bands that you'd like me to talk about, let me know. Give me a comment. I'll be happy to check it out. And until then, just know that no matter what happens, the music lives and rock's not dead. Take care.